Okay, everybody. What do we find? What do we think is similar between a biography written uh, today and these Gospels read about Jesus, and what is different? I want to start us off, just shout something out. Vince. Considering which, sorry, the Gospels? Yeah. Say more. Yes, okay, good, yes. Yeah. So there could be autobiographies if, obviously they're not Jesus, it's not Jesus writing the Gospels, but if they are talking about themselves in the Gospel. That's quite interesting, yeah. We'll come back to this. When we talk about each individual Gospel, we'll talk about the authors. Um, but certainly Matthew, that may be the case. Matthew may be written by Matthew the disciple. Uh, some people, you know, Mark's Gospel, near the end, just for the crucifixion, there's two really weird verses about this young guy who runs off naked. Uh, he gets really scared and he drops his cloak and he runs off naked. Some people, for no apparent reason, think that's Mark. They think Mark was there, Mark really wants to be in his gospel, and so he puts himself there. I don't think there's much evidence, but that would be an autobiographical comment if that was true. Um, anyone else, what do we think of? <laughs> really good, yeah, it's a good similarity. You start with birth, you start at the beginning, and you go right through the story. Fantastic. Excellent, yeah. So the stories are in a chronological sequence. Really good. So the stories are in a chronological sequence in both modern and ancient, but notice that in the gospel, you have, in some of the gospels only, about Jesus' birth, then you literally have almost 30 years with nothing, apart from one episode in Luke's gospel, and then you have the last uh, three years. And of course, you have a huge amount of the Gospels given as the last week of Jesus' life. You would think proportionally the amount of text that goes to the last week of Jesus' life and the last three years, there's a big difference. You'd never really do that, I don't think, in a modern biography. So there's a really good difference we got between the two, which will be significant in a minute. Say again, sorry? Might have been. David, the manufacturer of joinery, was not pertinent to the gospel. Maybe. Well, yeah. Presumably the years weren't that important in a sense, because we know about them. Were you going to say something, Shirley? So, so um, in the biography, it focuses on the person hmm. and how they're living. Jesus, it doesn't focus on him, even when it does for a little while. He's always, because he's focusing on people. That's really interesting, okay, yeah. That's interesting. So, in a sense, Jesus is always there, isn't he? But we learn about Jesus through his interactions with other people. Fantastic. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Any other bits and bobs? Which one's talking about? The Gospels? Yep. And certainly in a modern biography, unless I guess it was kind of political figure of speeches, you wouldn't get as much of their speech as we get in the Gospels, do we? Anything else? Good, yeah, yeah. So the Gospels might seem a little bit less connected together than a biography. Good, that leads us quite well on to Let's talk about some of the characteristics, the things that were common in this particular type of writing, these Greco-Roman bioi. 
And as we go along, see if you can spot the parallels with the Gospels. First of all, they have a consistent focus on the main character. Does that fit the Gospels? Yeah. People who are really geeky have done fantastic studies and they've looked at how many times Jesus is the subject of verbs in the Gospels. That means he's the person doing the action. And the proportions where Jesus is the subject of the verb are absolutely huge. Jesus is the one, time and time and time and time again, in almost all the stories, who is doing things in the Gospels. He is unquestionably the key character of all four. Another characteristic, they have a chronological structure, which we talked about. It's also found in modern, so start somewhere and works up somewhere else. But the nature of the genre was that that chronological structure didn't have to reflect history. So that could be that you've taken different bits in someone's life, you've stuck it on a timeline, but that might not actually be how the timeline has gone. And we'll see when we get to reading the Gospels that a lot of the stories are in different orders. And certainly they're telling us Jesus was born, lived and died, but actually for good reason they've reordered some of the stories and that even becomes part of the way we see their message in it. They have a very early introduction of the name of the key character. A modern biography might spend quite a while talking about the parents or grandparents and setting and all sorts of things about the person. In Greco-Roman bioi, you're going to find the name of the, the main character almost immediately. And in all the first three Gospels, certainly, that's definitely the case. John's Gospel would be the one exception in a sense because he has this kind of big poem starting about the word that was with God. But even there, we've got the word as the second or third word in the Gospel. He's right there fronted at the very beginning. And then it's very common in these Greco-Roman bioi to have a very detailed treatment of the key figure's death. Is that familiar from the Gospels? Hugely so. As I said, proportionally, the amount of time given to the final week of Jesus' life, which is the arrival at Jerusalem, uh, the last supper, the trial, his um, death and his resurrection, is a huge part of the Gospels, a third, uh, sometimes more. People sometimes have called the Gospels passion narratives, which is that story of Jesus' sufferings that passion's about, with extended introductions. So basically saying that's the important bit and the guys have stuck some bits on the front. That's a bit of an over-exaggeration, but actually it does point out how important the story of Jesus' death is in the Gospels. And then the aims of these texts are often apologetic, polemic or didactic. They're apologetic if they're trying to answer questions, they're trying to defend something from criticism. They're polemic if they're being really pointed, they're trying to teach you something or say something really specific to you. And didactic just means they're there to teach you. So whereas a modern biography is probably there to entertain us or to kind of appease our nosiness about the lives of people around us, actually in the ancient world, they're much more purposeful. You're writing it to try and teach people something, to try and communicate something to people. That's some of the key characteristics, and so we can see some differences there between how we might assume a biography works and how the Gospels work. But actually, there's something even more significant about the way modern biographies and these ancient biographies look at people. In the modern world, we understand people as very complex beings. We understand ourselves all as very much shaped by our background, shaped by our experiences. The, the way we and others view ourselves and our kind of experience of life now is very much often a thought to be a result of our upbringing and all sorts of things that happen in our lives. Biographies, therefore, of modern people tend to try and trace that development. That's why there's a lot of focus on childhood years and teenage years and early career, because actually they're working hard to show you this person you know like this became like this because of all these things that happened in their life. There's this big focus on what we might call the inner life or kind of the psychological development. 
In the ancient world where Jesus lived, people are viewed very differently. People are very static. People aren't expected to change hugely throughout their lives. People are born a certain way and in a sense are believed to pretty much stay that way throughout their lives. But their lives are like the window into who they are, the window into how they were born in this very static way. Therefore, an ancient biography like the Gospels is trying to reveal the essential nature or the essential character, what this person is really, really like, trying to give us that window into who they are. And so there are very few, if really any, uh, kind of elements of development in the character, of the character changing through their experiences. So all of this we know then about Greco-Roman bio, how does it actually help us read the Gospels? The key, key thing, we mustn't underestimate it helps us with and it tells us, is that the big picture reason why the Gospels are written is to tell us about Jesus. You might think that sounds really obvious, and in a sense it is, but actually I think from the way we often read the Gospels, it shows we really don't often get this point. This means that the key question we want to ask when we're reading the Gospels, when we read any story from the Gospels, the first thing we want to ask is what does this tell me about Jesus? Because our assumption is always that the author is trying to tell us about Jesus. So a good example of this is the story of the calming of the storm. You know, a really famous one, a classic Sunday school story. The disciples are in the boat with Jesus. The winds and rains in the Sea of Galilee get really strong. They're really terrified. Jesus is just sleeping there on a pillow. And they wake him up and they say, Jesus, don't you care? We're perishing. And Jesus completely calms the wind and the rain and um, talks about their faith. And then there's this line at the end and they all marvel and they say, who is this guy? And a lot of us probably would read that or have heard it preached or said or whatever, that this story is about how Jesus comes into the storms of life and the difficult things, the things that are going crazy, and he brings peace into any situation. A wonderful truth, I'm not denying that truth. But this story is meant to tell us about Jesus. And there's a real clue. That last question is the big clue for that story. The disciples see Jesus stop the wind and the rain and the, the crazy seas, and they marvel. They say, who is this man that even the wind and the ways and the seas obey him. And we as readers are meant to think, hang on a minute, the Psalms on several occasions say the only person who can control the wind and the rain and the seas is God. In that very story, the gospel writer is telling us, this man sleeping in the boat is God. He is the only one, or he is the one, who can do the things that only God can do. And so even though it's totally true that God comes and gives us wonderful peace that surpasses all understanding in the storms of life, that's not probably what that, or it's not, what that gospel writer is trying to say to us through that story. And by starting by knowing this is a Greco-Roman biography, therefore it's trying to tell me about Jesus, that immediately makes it much easier to understand what is this story telling us. And we kind of, I read that kind of story, and I sit there myself marvelling, this man who was asleep in a boat could control the winds and the waves. This was God sleeping in a boat. And it brings something to it. It's really, really incredible. It also tells us, um, the Gospels are written for a wide readership. It used to be really common to say that Mark wrote in one place for a small community and Matthew for his group and Luke for his and John for his and therefore they're read as very specific and they're addressing all the problems that are going on in those places. That's almost certainly not true if these were Greco-Roman bio. They probably had target audiences so we'll find when we get to Matthew he's almost certainly writing particularly to reach Jewish Christians, people who really, really knew the Old Testament, who really, really had that background understanding. But it's very unlikely that they were limited to one community. 
The reason that's good for us is because we don't live in Mark's community or Luke's or John's or Matthew's, but it means we should be able to expect to understand these texts. They're written to be spread around to tell us about this man, Jesus, so that we can understand who he is, so that we can kind of encounter him. It's encouraging for us because it means we don't need lots of really specialist uh, kind of detailed knowledge of where Mark was or his community or anything like that. We should expect to be able to understand these texts and be able to encounter Jesus through them. So first question, what are the Gospels? They're Greco-Roman biographies. That means they're there primarily to tell us about Jesus. And that simple fact is one of the most useful things you can know when reading uh, the Gospels. I should say they're not a perfect model of Greco-Roman bio. They are slightly developed, which means there is, of course, teaching about discipleship, isn't there? Jesus teaches his followers. So I'm not saying, which some people do say, which I think is weird, you read the teaching where Jesus is clearly talking about how his followers should live and they interpret it as something about Jesus. It doesn't make sense. But actually the primary mode we come with is this is telling me about Jesus. That's number one then. Key question number two is how were they written? I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I think until I had the opportunity to study the Gospels in a bit more depth, I don't think I'd really ever thought about it. It used to be really common to view the Gospels as collections of stories and sayings which had circulated around the early church and then being strung together like kind of pearls on a necklace. So it was a bit like a giant game of um, Chinese whispers, you know, where I whisper something to you and you whisper it to you and it passes on. And each time the story gets developed and the story gets changed and it's really funny because by the very end you've got a totally different story to that which you had at the beginning. This used to be the really common view of how um, the Gospels were written. In more recent years, actually, scholars have done a lot of work and they've shown that just doesn't make sense of what we have in the Gospels. They're actually far more crafted. They're not just random beads put onto a thread. Actually, even if they are beads, they've been very carefully organised, grouped together or putting orders or mixed up to communicate something specific to us. And they've also shown that there wasn't this long circulation of stories so that they changed and got longer and had things dropped and had things added to them. The first place we can actually start to understand how the Gospels are really written is the Gospels themselves. Often overlooked, but if we start at the very beginning of Luke's Gospel, he actually starts by telling us how it was that he wrote his Gospel. This is what he says, it's in your notes. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke opens with a preface very much like that found in history writing in the ancient world. He's showing his, write, his readers that he's writing history. This is stuff to be trusted. This is things that has really happened in the world. The first thing he notes is that there are already things written down. There are written narratives. He says many have undertaken to compile the narratives. They've got together the stories. They've talked to people. They've found out. They've written down. And so he made use of written sources. So when Luke's writing his gospel, we know that he has in front of him written stories about Jesus' life. He also refers to eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, who are probably actually the same people, the same group. These means, this means those people who were there with Jesus, those people who were in the boat with him, those people who sat at his feet as he taught. It's the people who heard what Jesus said when he was on earth, 
and now are going around the world in the early church proclaiming this to others. And he says that these eyewitnesses had delivered accounts of Jesus' life to them. He'd actually talked to them and they had passed over to him, as it were, in their words, their own eyewitness accounts of what had happened. Now in the ancient world, to have an eyewitness account was really, really good and really, really important. We probably, our way of thinking, we prefer something solid, something written down. But actually in the ancient world, they're much more interested in eyewitness accounts. If you can meet someone who's actually there, or you can read about it, even if it was someone who was there who's written it, the thing you're going to go for is to meet the person who was there and to talk to them. And Luke shows us that's what he did. He said, I found anyone I could who was there with Jesus. I talked to them. I've got their stories. And we see, just to, exa- to um, show this point, we see this preference for eyewitness in the writings of a guy called Josephus. Josephus will meet a few times over these weeks because he's a really important man. He was a Jewish historian uh, born around the time Jesus dies and lived up until the end of that century. And he wrote four or five really, really important works, which are one of the best insights for us into the world of Judaism of Jesus' day. So actually, what do the people around Jesus believe? Josephus is one of the most useful sources. And next week, we'll talk about that. But this is what he says when he's writing one of his works near the end of his life. He says, everyone that undertakes to deliver the history of actions truly, so wants to write accurate history, ought to know them accurately himself. In the first place, as either hadn't been concerned in them themselves, i.e. they ought to be an eyewitness, or being informed of them by such as knew them, i.e. having talked to eyewitnesses. So to have eyewitnesses was the be-all and end-all, the thing you really, really want if you're writing history in the ancient world. And Luke says he's paid really close attention both to the written stuff he'd found and also, most importantly, to these eyewitnesses. And now he's writing his own account on the basis of all of them. So he's not running around saying, oh, that person heard that story, I'll have that one. And oh, that one's a bit exciting, I'll add that one. He's really carefully researching, looking at trusted written sources and particularly finding people who are actually there and actually talking to them. Let's talk really quickly about evidence for eyewitness testimony in the gospel. Many people, both scholars who study this professionally and actually just Joe blogs on the street, thanks to some unhelpful books in some cases that have come out in the last, well, most of history, believe still that the Gospels are the cobbling together of these stories which are uh, added to and aren't really things that Jesus said. But actually there's really good reason, really good evidence to believe that what we read in the Gospels is eyewitness testimony, is accurate reports of history. And actually our faith, so it's faith, is based on fact, isn't it? And so actually these things are here to give us encouragement that when we read the Gospels, we can have uh, faith that these things really happened as these guys said they did, because there's good arguments that they did. Let me just zip through them really quickly. First of all, memorization was just much more common and much more effective in the ancient world. It wasn't the case that people had better memories, that isn't really true, but people were much more used to remembering things. If you don't have an iPhone to carry around with you all the time to look up everything you need to know, if you don't have many books even, because unless you're quite rich, you can't afford to have many written materials, The way you learn, the way you have the stuff you need to know to do your job, whatever it might be, is by memorising it. People were just really used to memorising things. They would have patterns. I don't know if any of you, when you did exams back at school, you might have learnt ways that you found helpful to memorise things. They would have used that all the time. So there's good reason to think that they were much better at remembering things they'd heard, things they'd seen, than we were. 
And in particular, memorization was really important in Jewish education. So all of Jesus, Jesus and his mates and his contemporaries would have been really used to remembering things. Number two, this is really good. The eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and death didn't immediately disappear, including those who didn't like Jesus. This means that if someone had come along and they'd made up a story about Jesus and then had gone into one of the Gospels, there were loads of people around, both those who liked Jesus and those who didn't like Jesus, who could have gone, hang on a minute, I was there. That didn't happen. Or that's not what Jesus said. If you wanted to make up a story about Jesus, you were going to have to wait a long time until all of these people had died, actually, basically. So there's a really good reason to think these stories can't just be made up because otherwise people just come along and said, but that was not true, and that's not true, and that's not true. The fact they were accepted and they've been passed down to us shows that the guys who were actually there must have believed this is what happened. Number three, it's quite possible, quite plausible, that even in the very early times when Jesus was teaching, people made some notes. We know that students of rabbis, as many people saw Jesus, that's just Jewish teachers, made some notes to remember what they said. It's perfectly plausible they did that for Jesus. Number four, in the life of Jesus, there's those stories when he sends out the 12 and sends them to the villages and towns to preach the gospel of the kingdom, to cast out demons, to heal the sick. Then he does the same in Luke's gospel with the 72. That means that even while Jesus is still on earth, there's a context in which these stories are being retold. There's a context in which Jesus' teaching is already being told. Way before even Jesus is killed, they're already going to be formulating, how do we tell this story? How do I preserve this teaching that Jesus has given me and pass it on? So it's not the case that kind of 30, 40 years after Jesus dies, they think, guys, we really ought to try and you know, preserve some of this stuff for other people. Even while Jesus is still alive, they're remembering these stories and using them. And that's good reason to believe that accepted forms which were trusted have come down to us in the Gospels. If you think about it, there are really hard sayings in the Gospels. There are things which make Jesus look a bit odd. There are things definitely that make the disciples look really bad. Why would they make up stories like that? If they're trying to say, this is Jesus, he's great, come follow him. Why would you make up stories that actually show Jesus being a bit offensive or being quite unclear? And why would they show stories themselves not trusting Jesus or denying Jesus? There's really good reason to believe that these stories have to be true or there'd be no reason for them to put them in the Gospels. In a similar vein, it's striking that Jesus in his speech in the Gospels doesn't actually talk about most of the things that were really controversial in the early church. If you think about the letters, the early church, things like Galatians, what's really controversial? Circumcision is a big one, and the food laws. You read the Gospels, Jesus, I think, never talks about circumcision and has any debate about whether people should or shouldn't get circumcised, and very rarely talks about food laws. If these are stories being made up by the early church, it makes sense that they would think, we need a story to clarify this debate we're having over here. Let's make a story about what Jesus said about circumcision. It doesn't happen because they're recording faithfully what Jesus has said. And the final one is the flip side of that. There are some things which are really, really important in the Gospels, really prominent, particularly in what Jesus says, which just don't turn up in the rest of the New Testament. The most common way, by far, Jesus um, talks about himself, particularly Matthew, Mark and Luke, is as the son of man. It's only used two more times in the New Testament, in Acts and Revelation, I think. Again, if they were trying to make up stories, you'd think they'd use the titles they were using after Jesus had gone to be the father in these stories. The fact that they don't must suggest the stories came from a different time. The stories came from Jesus. This really was the title that Jesus used for himself. 
So hopefully that is an encouragement that when we're reading the Gospels, we really are reading the things that happened. We really are reading eyewitness testimony of people who saw these things take place, heard the teaching, experienced the events. None of this denies that the story circulated orally in spoken language. There's no doubt that did happen. We've got good evidence of that. But it does mean that the Gospel writers aren't just putting from Joe Bloggs little bits and bobs they hear. They have researched carefully, and there's good reason to believe that they have got the accurate accounts from the eyewitnesses, that what we read in these Gospels is really reliable. Let's pause there. Are there any questions on any of anything we've said so far? Great. That means I'm really clear or so unclear you haven't got a thing. Now, here's an interesting one. Let's move on to how or why are some of the Gospels, at least, so similar? Have you ever noticed when you read Matthew's Gospel, Mark's Gospel, and Luke's Gospel, they're really similar. Lots of the same stories, lots of the same teaching, even down to the level of using the same words, and so much so that even in English translation, you can recognise they're using the same words here. How has that come to be? How has that happened? It could be, of course, that since these stories or these Gospels are based on eyewitness testimony, that the Gospel writers spoke to a variety of the eyewitnesses and they happened to talk to the same people who happened to tell them Jesus' sayings in what happened to be the same translation into Greek of the Aramaic sayings Jesus had said. And they happened to put them in the same order as well. It could be. It's just not very plausible. It also just doesn't really account for the fact that there's such close verbal agreement all the way through in both the narrative and in the spoken words of Jesus. It's much more likely they used each other. It's a bit like if a teacher got three different essays from three different students, but in several places their words were identical, the structure they've used is identical, the the, uh, teacher is immediately going to know someone has copied from someone else who's probably copied from someone else. There's some literary, it's a written relationship between these three essays. In the same way, we look at these Gospels, they're so similar, there's got to be a connection between the three of them. For this reason, these three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, have sometimes been called the synoptic Gospels, which is a term I'll use, it's quite useful. That just means they're seen together, because they're similar, they're together, synopsis, seen. The synoptic Gospels mean we can look at them as one because they're telling the same stories together. So the big question is, and the thing which I promise you when we get to the end of this will make a difference to how we can read the Gospels, the big question is how do we actually account for these similarities? Which Gospel writer used which other Gospel or other Gospels, or which Gospel writers as they sat down had in front of them the same written stories and the same written sayings of Jesus? Well, before I tell you what I think, you're going to have a chance to try and work it out yourself. This may work really well. This may be an utter disaster. But whatever happens, you'll get to do some colouring, so everyone will be happy. On your tables in front of you, you have some felt-tip pens, and you guys have some pens here. On the next page, if you turn over, you will see a, what we call a synopsis of a gospel story. It's a synopsis because we can see them together. You've got Matthew in one column, you've got Mark in another column, and you've got Luke in the third column. And each of these three columns is the same story, but in the different Gospels. And it's been carefully lined up so you can really easily see whether they use the same words, whether they've got different bits, and we're going to be able to explore the relationship between them. So what I want you to do, and you can work together to help each other, 
is to use different colours to underline different parts of agreement. And you've got a list there. So you want to use one colour, or you could use a pattern if you've got a black pen, to um, mark where all three Gospels agree. When all three Gospels use the same word, you want to use one colour. When only Matthew and Mark agree, and Luke puts it differently, you want to use a different colour so you can tell the difference. When only Matthew and Luke agree, use a different colour again, so you can see that Mark's different. And then finally, you want to do it when only Mark and Luke agree. And you've got this list here. Let me show you a little example. This is a different story. In this example here, all these dark red bits, can you see they're identical? Having arisen, having arisen, having arisen. They've been coloured in dark red because they're all the same. All the purple bits are where Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel agree. So both of them use the word says. They're both in purple because they're agreeing. All the green bits are where Matthew on this end and Luke on the far end agree. We can see it's only one word named they both use. The orange is used when Mark and Luke agree. Is there any of that? Levi, yes. It's not very good colours. Levi is used by both Mark and Luke, but not by Matthew. And then there's some stuff only in Matthew. That's the dark blue. There's some stuff only in Luke. That's in the yellow. And there's some stuff only in red, only in Mark, which is the bright red, which I also can't see. There may not be any. There was. There is. Does that make sense? So use your little code on the left-hand side to underline colouring and discuss what do you think this all means? Can you fathom from this who's used who, who's copying from who? How do we find that? It can be quite tricky, can't it? I did some mistakes of mine, so be encouraged. <laughs> I haven't done it before. I still did some mistakes. You do a bit and you think, oh, no, it is there too. Um, anyone wants to hazard any guesses? It's for a laugh from doing that kind of exercise on which gospel has used which other gospel or gospels? Anyone get any insight? Find any patterns? Cool. Why do you think that might be the case? Because uh, there's a lot of similarities that he uses, except Luke does it more uh, um, as if it has happened. Whereas Mark says that it's happening or is happening. Okay, nice. So it's like Mark, so like Luke has taken Mark maybe. Maybe even tied it up a bit, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Also, Luke actually says he's collected accounts. This is true. This is true. <laughs> the advantage of Luke, you know he had someone in front of him. So, yeah, that is very true. Very good. Anyone else? Observations? Yeah. Excellent. Why do you think that? Can you try and explain that a bit? Really good, yeah. Apart from that chunk at the beginning of the Matthew bit, if we didn't have Mark, we wouldn't lose much, would we? That, that's a helpful way to put it. That's not true of the Gospel in general. But of this story, <laughs> it is true that not many words would be missing. So Mark seems to be kind of the middle term. So that's quite significant. So I think you're right. I think both um, Matthew and Luke have used Mark. Let's try and walk through this a bit. So, um, try and work at the best way of doing this. What do we notice by noting the agreements? The first thing we notice is there are parts, quite a few parts, where all three Gospels um, are saying the same thing. So in this one, that's the dark red. So quite a bit down the bottom there and a bit more in the middle. There are things, words, they all use identically. There's got to be sharing between them. We then notice there are several parts where Mark and Matthew agree. 
So in our colors here, that is the purple. So kind of here, sorry guys, to my side here, that's the main chunk of it, a bit at the top as well. But notice Luke doesn't have those things. So Mark and Matthew share some, but Luke doesn't. And then notice also there are several parts where Mark and Luke agree. So that's the middle and the end, that's the yellow stuff. Um, quite a bit of yellow there actually, where Mark and Luke agree. Matthew doesn't have any of that. But there are very few moments when both Matthew and Luke agree and don't agree with Mark. There's only two bits of green. This suggests that Matthew is the piggy in the middle. And Matthew is the, the uh, sorry, Mark. Mark is the piggy in the middle. Mark is the one who they have taken things from. And then there are parts also, which you didn't cover in yours, which are unique to each gospel. Quite a chunk here, actually, for Matthew in the dark blue. Um, there'll be very little, if anything, in Mark. And a bit, the yellow in Luke is what he himself has said. Very little that's in Mark, possibly nothing that's in Mark, that's not in the other two Gospels. And these observations, if you come to the next page in your notes, you'll find are reflective of the Gospels as the whole. And you've got this fancy diagram. Things will get much less colourful after this week, I'm afraid. This diagram helps us to think how many of the stories are parallel between the different Gospels. In the middle, you've got what we call the triple tradition. These are stories and sayings which overlap almost the same wording in all three Gospels. And so you see a whole 76% of Mark is found in both Luke and in both Matthew. And then you find that some of Mark is in Matthew, but not in Luke. And so that's the red over there, about 10% of Matthew. And some of Mark is found in Luke, but not in Matthew. About, only about 1% of Luke and 3% of Mark. What that means is 97% of Mark's gospel can be found in either Matthew or Luke's gospel. Again, this suggests that he is the man in the middle. We then find, um, what haven't we done? Matthew and Luke share material not found in Mark. That's this chunk down here, the double tradition. It's found in two gospels, about a quarter of both Matthew and Luke's gospel. There must be somewhere that they are getting this from. Either one of them has copied from the other one, or they're both copying from the same uh, other thing, the same external thing. And then Matthew contains some unique material, about 20% of his Gospels only found there, and Luke contains some unique material. About 35% of Luke is found over there. That's the evidence. Now we've got to work out what this all mean. How do we account for this? How do we make sense of it? The most common explanation, and the only one we're going to talk about in detail tonight, is called the two-source hypothesis. This says that Mark was the gospel that was written first. So Mark writes his gospel. Mark, as we'll talk about, we talk Mark, may well have been the interpreter of the Apostle Peter. So his key eyewitness was probably the Apostle Peter. He's got lots of stories from Peter, probably also from other eyewitnesses, and he writes his gospel. And then both Matthew and Luke, when they sit down to write their gospels, they have a copy of Mark's gospel, or at least some of it, in front of them. That's why all of this purple goes straight from Mark down and makes a huge chunk of Matthew and quite a sizable chunk of Luke. But then we also find that there's this material both Matthew and Luke have in common that's not found in Mark's gospel. They haven't got it from Mark's gospel. They've got to have got it from somewhere. And most scholars would say that came from something we obscurely called Q. Q is named after a German word, Quelle, which means sources. Basically, it's just another source. We don't know what it is, so we just call it Q. Almost all of that blue chunk there is sayings of Jesus. There's barely any narrative, any story within that. It's almost all the words of Jesus. So it seems that both Matthew and Luke had access to a written document 
of sayings of Jesus. And we do know that people did write collections which were primarily or solely sayings and not stories of Jesus in the early church. And then also they've got their unique bits, the green and the blue. And some people would want to go even more whole hog and they'd go, Matthew has another source called M, which is his green bit, and Luke has one called L, which is his green bit. But for all we know, every single one of those separate stories could come from a different eyewitness. We don't know where that came from, but certainly they've got separate sources there. This is by far the most convincing explanation of the evidence, I think, really. The others have major problems. The alternatives are that Matthew and Luke, one of them has used each other. So Matthew copied from Luke or Luke copied from Matthew. There's just big problems with that, particularly think about the Christmas stories. Apart from the names of Joseph and Mary and Jesus, there's almost no overlap between the Christmas stories in Matthew and in Luke. If one of them copied from the other, why did they not mix Matthew's story, say, into what Luke had? It's just a bit random how they've not brought it together to give a fuller picture. They've got very different stories that don't overlap. Um, it's also the case that we'll find this and we do a bit more um, work on Matthew and Luke. Matthew groups all his teaching together. On the next page, halfway down, you can see there's a bit there, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. And if you take three consecutive sayings from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, and you ask, where are they in Luke's Gospel? The first one's in chapter 6, second one's in chapter 14, the third one's in chapter 8. Now either Matthew read Luke and pulled those all together and grouped them together, or Luke read Matthew and thought, why has he stuck all those together? Let's randomly throw them about into the ministry of Jesus. Or they both had Q, they both had these separate sayings of Jesus, and Matthew said, here, I'm going to talk about all this teaching Jesus gives about how to be a disciple of Jesus. And so I'm going to put all these sayings together and make this wonderful sermon of teaching. But Luke goes, oh, actually, these stories or these statements about blessing, these fit better in my story here. You're going to understand them better if they're here. This story about being the salt of the earth, actually, if we put that next to this story, you'll really get to understand that better. By far the best explanation is that this is what these guys were doing, and this is how these texts were written. Doesn't answer every problem, and so there are still a few anomalies we can't account for with any of the solutions, and if you are feeling geeky at home, you can read through the Ferrer hypothesis, the Griesbach hypothesis, and the Augustinian hypothesis if you want to know all the options. There's a fantastic website online which lists literally hundreds of variations of different ways of doing this, uh, which is listed, I think, in the further resources if you're interested. John's Gospel, just to say, obviously we haven't talked about, is very different. He doesn't overlap in the same way. And we'll talk about how he wrote his gospel when we get to his gospel on week, whatever, week five. But here's the important bit. So what? Lovely to know. Great fun to have some geeky facts about how the gospels are written. Why does it actually matter? Why does it actually help us? It helps us because knowing how the, the synoptic gospels are related helps us to see something of their focuses. If Matthew takes a story from Mark, but he makes some changes to that story, he puts different emphases forward, that gives us an idea of what Matthew wants to communicate to us through that story. Likewise, if Matthew and Luke both have the same saying from Jesus, but one of them uh, changes some of the words, he interprets Jesus' words to make it different, a bit more clear, we can see Luke really wants us to understand something about this and that they're trying to give us different perspectives on Jesus. And it's when we know the order the Gospels are written in, who has taken from whom, that it really helps us to compare these and to get some really kind of exciting insights into what's going on. And we can do it on a larger scale as well, which we'll do in our gospel weeks when we'll see how uh, Matthew's group's teaching together, 
but Luke hasn't. How Matthew's trying to say something by the fact he puts certain bits of teaching together. We've got to be careful with this. Some of these variations will just be stylistic. So some of the really tiny, picky things you found in your example there, I particularly say uh, Luke's example, where Luke has put it more in a completed past tense, is just because Luke tries to be quite fancy in his language, whereas Mark really doesn't, and Matthew is kind of in the middle somewhere. So he's probably not making a big statement theologically by putting it more finely done, but he is trying to say, look at me, I can write much better Greek than Mark or than Matthew can. Also, this is really, really important. Just because there are variations, which we cannot deny there are, you've just seen in the text, doesn't mean that the gospel writers didn't care about accuracy, didn't care about listening to their sources, listening to their eyewitnesses, that they thought, well, I can do what I like, I can make whatever I want up. Actually, when there are variations, they are minor, as you saw there. And when there are variations in the words of Jesus, they are interpretations of what Jesus has said. And we have to distinguish between the words of Jesus and the voice of Jesus. So the words would be the exact words he said. The voice would be a summary of the key point he was saying. In the same way that if you go home and you tell someone about a conversation you had when you were having your cup of tea earlier, you're very unlikely to tell them the exact words that were said. There'd be too many of them, they might not understand them. You're going to give the voice of what was said, the summary. And sometimes in the Gospels, there's no doubt that's what we have. Um, the same in Acts. If you think about the sermons in Acts, they literally last no time at all. They must have been longer. They're a summary, an accurate summary, of what was being said at the time. If we had more time, which we don't, are we going to do this? We would do some more colouring. If you turn over, you'll see you've got three examples there. Let's do one example together. It's a really simple one, which will help us to um, see how comparing these Gospels can help. If you turn to the second of your photocopy sheets, and in the middle it says number 148 and the answer to prayer. Just um, in your groups, does that make sense, sorry? So your second photocopied sheet of Gospel synopsis. And then in the middle, it says the answer to prayer, number 148. Just in your groups, really quickly, read those together. See if you can spot the glaring um, variation and see if you can tell what that might tell us about Matthew or about Luke. So just three minutes, read the two, those two passages parallel in your groups and see if you can show, notice what they're telling us. Okay, anyone want to share a different a variation they've noticed? Excellent, bingo. There are two differences. One's about the scorpions and bread and stuff. I don't think that's important, other than the fact that it probably means Luke's talking to a more urban kind of Roman Empire context and Matthew to a more Palestinian context. The important one, excellent. Matthew ends this saying by, won't the Father give you uh, good things to those who ask him. Luke says the Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Anyone want to venture what's going on and what this tells us about what these gospel writers care about, what they want to say to us? Excellent, yeah. And this will help just go over time when we start weeks in the different gospels and as you read the gospels more, it suggests Luke cares about the Holy Spirit and when you read Luke's gospel, he really cares about the Holy Spirit. You read... Uh, Luke's Christmas stories and the Holy Spirit is all over the place doing all sorts of exciting things. You read Acts, of course, two volumes, Luke and Acts, two volumes together. Holy Spirit, absolutely central. And there's several stories, even the one we did actually, I think um, Luke makes a bigger thing 
of the Holy Spirit coming down. He has Jesus praying and the Holy Spirit comes upon him at his baptism. Both prayer and the Holy Spirit are really big themes in Luke. He really wants you to understand that the prayer and uh, prayer and the Holy Spirit are really important to being Jesus followers. And again, you go to Acts, you find prayer is really important and the Holy Spirit is really important. So you see just there a little example of how comparing the two makes us think, oh, okay, why is that the case? And asking why begins to open some doors to us to two different perspectives from Jesus, trying to make two um, complementary but different points. And if you so desire, at home you can do the other two activities that are there. One of them is when we're first introduced to John the Baptist, and the clue there is to look at the Old Testament quotation, and one of them is the centurion's response to the death of Jesus. And the clue there is to think about, again, Luke seems to be wanting to emphasise something slightly different to Matthew and Mark. Good, you're doing really well, guys. We're on to our last question now. Any questions, though, on that whole thing of how the Gospels are written? Excellent. Let's tackle then. How should we read the Gospels? We could easily do another additional seven weeks on how to read the Gospels, how to read the Bible in general. Um, and hopefully, really, as we do it together over the next few weeks, that will demonstrate it to you. We'll learn it a bit by osmosis. Reading the Bible really is an art, not a science. So there are tools you can learn, there are principles you can learn, but ultimately it's something you learn to do by doing it, and particularly by doing it together and learning together. So I hope that when we do our journey through the Gospels, you will learn by watching how I do that, something of how to read them. But there are uh, three things which are fundamentally important for reading the Gospels, for reading any part of the Bible really, which will give us a really good foundation to go on from, from here tonight. Number one, Always, always, always read the Bible with the author. The Bible is utterly unique among books in that every time you read it, you can have the author sitting right there with you, talking to you, helping you, instructing you. The first step in reading the Bible is always to ask the Holy Spirit to come and help you and to come and be with you as you do so. The Bible is written simultaneously by human authors and by God. Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy tells us it is breathed out by God. It has come from the very being, the very core of God. He was working through the human authors, ensuring that what they wrote was what he wanted, not as some sort of robot dictation. So they go, oh, my hand's moving, I'm writing these words. There's a partnership that God ensures the Bible says what he wants it to say. That means every time we read it, the author, he himself, is there with us, ready to help us. When we ask the Holy Spirit to help us, we're not asking for some fresh new uh, revelation that no one before has ever seen so that we can wow the world with it. In fact, if we think we found something fresh and new and totally different, we've almost certainly got it wrong. Um, but actually, we're asking for him to help us to correctly understand what God wants us to say to us through this passage. So that is the first point, and really, I think, the most important one. The confession for me, the one I find easiest to rush off without doing, actually. But it's so important to pause to wait on the Holy Spirit, to show our dependence on him, and to ask him to help us. And the next two key things are to think about questions, to think about context. How we read the Gospels is related to the question of how we read the Bible in general, which actually is related to how we read any text at all. We tend to all get a bit panicky when we read the Bible. We think when we read the Bible, we must interpret it, and interpreting it is really hard. Not realising that any of us who read, or even actually listen to different spoken word things at any time, are always interpreting. Everything you read, everything you listen to, you are interpreting it, it to get the meaning out of it. 
true, sometimes the Bible is harder for us to interpret for all sorts of different reasons, but be encouraged that you are already wonderful interpreters because the fact that you are able to engage with people in daily life, to read things, to hear things and understand them shows that you have the ability to interpret those things. And good Bible reading, just like all reading, is all about asking the right questions and understanding the text in the right context. Everything we read is done by asking questions. Let's start with questions. When you read something, even though you probably don't realise it, you are inherently or subtly in your head asking questions of it. And we do this so naturally that we don't even realise it. And this is where that whole thing of genres and the contracts between the author and the readers comes in. When you pick up a newspaper, you are immediately asking the question without knowing it, what's happened in the world and what do people think about it? You know that that is the question that this newspaper is trying to answer. And so you're interpreting what you're getting from the newspaper through that question. If you read a set of instructions or a recipe, you're asking the questions, how do I do this? And what do I do next? A novel or a story, you're saying, well, what happened next? And how is this problem? Because all good stories start with a problem. How is the problem going to be solved? Or a historical document, what happened at this time? And why did it happen? A science textbook, how does the world normally work? And if we ask the wrong questions of a type of text, you get totally muddled up, totally the wrong answers. If I read a joke book to try and find out how to bake a cake, I'm not going to understand the jokes and I'm not going to end up with a very good cake. Likewise, if I read a recipe book expecting it to make me laugh, it's not probably going to work. I'm asking the wrong question of the text. I've got to know the right question. I've got to ask it to get the right answer. So that, of course, raises the question, what questions should we ask when reading the Bible? Often, I think the question we instinctively ask probably is what does this text mean to me? Or what does it mean for me? Or we might say, what does God want to say to me through this text right now? And that is a fantastic question. It's a really important question. It's part of our relationship with God, isn't it? Of hearing him speak to us in the moment through the Holy Spirit and through the Bible. However, I think that's much more like prophecy than about reading the Bible. It sounds like prophecy, doesn't it? What does God want to say to me now through the Holy Spirit for the moment, directly kind of into this time, into this situation? Because the problem with that approach is that I can read a text and I can say, well, to me, I think it means this. And Sarah can read it and say, well, I think it's saying this. Or for me, it's all about this. And all three of those, or all of us here could say that, we could all say something completely different. And many of those things could totally contradict to each other. But if the only question we're asking is, what does this say to me? Or what was God saying to me through this at the moment? We have no way of saying, actually, that can't be right. So not only can you get contradictory things, you can get really dangerous things. Someone could read a passage of the Bible and say, I think this means I should go and slaughter all the people in that country. If the only way we read the Bible is by saying, what's it say to me? You can't tell them they're wrong. That is what it's saying to them. So I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying we've got to do that rightly. If it's like prophecy, it must be weighed like prophecy. When a prophecy comes, we say, okay, we think God is saying this to us now in this moment through the Holy Spirit. And we need to measure it against something solid and stable, which reveals to us what God is like, what God has done, how God acts, and measure it against other things we know God has said to see if it's accurate. So when we feel God speaks to us very individually, personally, through a passage, that's wonderful. And we take it like we would a prophecy, we weigh it, and if it fits with what we know of God, we know of how he works and what he's done, that's wonderful. We take it, we step into it, we live that out in our lives. How then do we get that solid basis to measure it against? There must be a different question. 
We all know from daily life that most things we read and things we say have one meaning. So when you write a note to someone, you want them to read it and you want them to understand what the meaning you want to put in it. You don't want them to say, well, to me, this note, this note means this, or for me, it's all about this. So for example, if uh, one of my housemates writes a note which says, please buy more milk, it means that they want someone to buy more milk. It wouldn't make sense for me to read this note and say, to me, this means that dairy is really good for me, or to me, this means that more calcium is good for my diet. There's one meaning. The meaning is that my housemate wants me to buy milk. There's one meaning, but there might be multiple applications to that note. Multiple things I should do when I've correctly understood the message of that note. The application might be going to the shop and buying some more milk. The application might be sending a text to apologise that I can't get to the shop today. It might be recognising someone else has already bought milk and so I don't need to, and so I can just ignore the message. The message. The meaning of the message has not changed at all. There's only one meaning to the message, go buy the milk. But the application changes based on the context, based on situations, based on all sorts of different things. That is how language works. Whenever you say something to someone, there's almost always one meaning, but the application, what they need to do on the back of it, might be very different. The task of good Bible reading is to say what is the one meaning, the message of the text, which the author and the Holy Spirit wanted to communicate it when they wrote it, and what are the application or applications for me today? You see how that pattern, there's one meaning to the text, I'm gonna get that, and then I'm gonna say, okay, how does that apply to me? How does it make a difference to me today? So I think the better question to ask in reading the Bible, the question we're gonna try and ask now, the question I always am asking if I'm preaching or teaching, the question which I do think should make, be the key, the kind of main question we ask when reading the Bible on our own, though there's definitely a place for letting God um, speak to us more in that kind of directly in the moment way as well. The question is, what did the original author want to communicate to the original audience? When Mark sits down and writes his gospel, knowing that people around the Roman Empire are going to read it, what does he want them to understand from each story, from each uh, saying of Jesus in there? This means it's no longer about what the text, what we think the text means, it's about what the text says. So it's a good practice in a Bible study of a group, don't keep saying, I think this, I think this, to me this. Actually say, it seems the text is saying this, and there should be reasons for it. You should be able to say, I think that because the text says this, or because of this reason and that reason. This is admittedly a lot more difficult. It requires a bit of thinking, a bit of hard work. It's also a lot more useful gives us a solid bedrock of truth. We know God has said, we know tells us about him, about what he's done in the world, about how we are to live in response. And as sure as I said, we should be able to defend our answers by giving evidence from the text. With the Gospels, there are two levels we do this on. First of all, we want to ask, well, what did the Gospel writer want to communicate through this? What did Mark or Luke want to say through this? But because they are also recording the teaching of Jesus, there will also be times when we say, here are the words of Jesus that so he's teaching. Um, what did Jesus want to communicate through this? So the same question, but notice there are two levels. There's the level of the author, and there's the level of Jesus within the gospel, as it were. And of course, we know from talking about Greek and Roman biography that also a key question we can come to the gospels specifically with is what does this tell us about Jesus? So number one, getting the right question for reading the Bible actually is a huge step towards reading the Bible well. Number two is to understand the Bible in the right context. 
Most people know it's a very commonly said thing that to read the Bible well, you need to read it in context. What most people overlook is that actually there are multiple different contexts that you need to read the Bible in. It's not as simple as a context. There are lots of different contextual things, which again, in natural life, you'd automatically bring into your interpretation of a, a writing or a saying that we need to try and get our heads around for the Bible. There are three main ones. Let me quickly zip through them. And the bulk of next week's session will be giving over to the first two of these. That when we read the Gospels, we really know the context in which we're reading them. First of all, is the scriptural context. The Bible tells one big story. Genesis to Revelation, 66 books, but one big story. The story of God creating a perfect world, everything getting destroyed, Jesus coming to defeat all that destroyed it. And one day Jesus came back with a new creation. Everything that was broken having been restored. And so where the part of the Bible we're reading comes in that big story is really important for understanding what it means for understanding what goes on. For the Gospels particularly, it's really important to understand that the dividing point of history is not the end of the Old Testament at the start of the New Testament, which we instinctively, and you know, I can see why people think it, think the dividing point of history is the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And so our division between Old and New Testament, though helpful in many ways, actually misleads us to thinking, oh, Matthew 1, I'm in the new part of the story. And actually, the real new part of the story doesn't come until Jesus has risen from the dead. And that will be really important for interpreting some of what Jesus says. Because actually, when Jesus is alive, when Jesus teaches, when Jesus talks, he's still under the old covenant. And so there'll be times when he's talking backward to people who are in a situation we are no longer in. There are also times when he looks beyond his death and resurrection to the time we are in. And one of our tasks is to think of what is the scriptural context, the place in the Bible's big story, that Jesus is trying to say this saying in. That's um, context number one. Context number two, the historical context. We're all totally shaped by the time we live in, whether we know it or not, we are. Imagine if just 15 years ago, maybe it was 10 years ago, you said to someone you were going to Facebook them. They would think you were going to whack them in the face with a book. Most of us now know that means they're going to send you a private message on Facebook. We've all been shaped and conditioned by the historical time and place that we live in. And that's no less true of Jesus, no less true of the authors of the Gospels. And so we need to try and get our heads a bit around different historical contexts of the different texts in order to understand them. And within this, there are three different elements. There's the larger historical context. What was going on in the world at this time? For the Gospels, this is really important. I guess for the Gospels and the Old Testament prophets is where this is the most important thing. The Gospels come at the time when the Romans are in charge. The Jews have been uh, put into, not quite slavery, but um, are under the control of the Romans. They don't like it. Actually, understanding Jewish history uh, before the Gospels really helps us understand why people were so desperate for someone like Jesus to come, but also why Jesus was, in a sense, a real surprise to them. And next week, we'll talk a lot about those stories of what happens between the Old Testament and the New Testament that actually create all this expectation of we're waiting for the one, and then of the one says he's come, but it looks nothing like we expected him to. Then there's historical cultural details. These are just little bits we need to know to understand their significance. So the most famous one probably is the hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so for stories like the Samaritan woman at the well uh, and the Good Samaritan parable, that little bit of historical information suddenly sheds huge light on the meaning of that text. For the Gospels, an understanding of Judaism in the time of Jesus is really helpful. And again, that stuff we'll do next week. And I think that is really important, but I also think we can overplay this. So don't think, oh, because I don't know much about the world, 
uh, the first century world, I can't understand the New Testament. That's just not true, actually. That's the kind of thing scholars say to look better than the rest of us and to try and exclude us, I think. Um, this is written by the Holy Spirit for all of us to understand. So you want to read and talk and work to find out things, but don't just think, oh, until someone tells me, I'm never going to understand any of this. Finally, there's the occasion. When, where, and why something was written or said helps us understand it rightly. With the Gospels, we need to consider both when they were written. So who's writing this? Where are they writing it? Are they writing it for a particular reason? So for example, Matthew, he's probably writing particularly for Jewish readers. Mark almost certainly is not. He's probably writing in Rome. So writing to people who know nothing about um, Palestine, nothing about um, where Jesus lived and kind of what people um, believed then. <coughs> the occasion gives us some insight into the kind of questions this text is going to be trying to answer. There's some historical context. Finally, literary context. The meaning of words and sentences primarily comes from their context. We live in a world with dictionaries, and dictionaries have misled us into thinking that words inherently have meaning. They kind of don't. Language is this really weird, fascinating uh, code that we manage to understand. But if I said to you, or if someone said to you, I would never say this, um, I got totally greenhoused last night you would probably immediately know what I mean. You would think this is a very posh person telling me they were completely drunk last night. It's the context that tells you the meaning of that. Look it up in a dictionary, greenhouse has nothing to do with drinking alcohol. But actually because of the context of the type of saying that's used in, you sense the meaning of that word is this. That's an extreme example, because words do have meanings because of the way we use them. But actually meaning is shaped much more by what's around it than what's in the dictionary than we tend to realize. That's why it's really important to pay attention to the words that come before and after things if you actually want to understand. The other example I love is imagine you're walking through town, you hear someone on the phone saying, I'm totally going to destroy that guy. And you think, oh man, this is really scary. Should I do something? Is he going to go and murder someone? You know, what's going on? I'm going to feel really guilty if something happens and I haven't done anything. What you don't know is that evening this guy is playing in the local chess championships and he's talking about the guy he's going to defeat. Because that's taken totally out of context, you've totally misunderstood what it means. But hearing what came either side, suddenly it makes sense. How do we apply this? Always read a chunk of the Bible, not a single verse. The most, the most kind of uh, helpful piece of Bible reading advice, and the most simple one, is never read a verse of the Bible on its own. The verse numbers are added over a thousand years after all this stuff is written, often in slightly silly places, um, and is very misleading. Always read at least a paragraph. In the gospel, we have standalone stories a lot of the time. Always read the whole story and try and interpret the whole story together. Ask how it fits and how it functions, what it's doing within the narrative or within that section of teaching. Ask how it fits with what comes before it and what comes after it. And a really helpful one is to think, well, if I was to summarize this in one or two sentences, and then I take that summary, stick it back in the original context, read the paragraph before, the summary, and the paragraph answer after. If it makes sense, I might be getting close to what it means. If it makes absolutely no sense, clearly my summary of what that actually means cannot be correct. All of these are really important things. Let's quickly do a very quick last activity. You're going to have five minutes. Randomly pick any of these passages on here. Open up your Bible, have a look at them and to decide what type of context helps you to rightly understand that passage. Is it scriptural, historical, or literary context? And see if you can think how it helps you. Pick one or two, and in five minutes, we'll feed back. Oh, 
I know you haven't had long, but I'd love to get to the last session and I am behind time. So, anyone got one they managed to do in that time they want to quickly share with us? Pick any of these. John for 142, cool. What's the story? Cool. Excellent. Absolutely. Good, yeah, yeah. So the difference between Samaritans and Jews is really important for that story. Really good, Paul. That one's really quite cool as well. There's an added element to this. There's what's called a type scene in the Bible. So a common thing that happens, particularly in Genesis, when people, when men and women meet at a well, they normally end up getting married. So um, I'm going to get the names wrong. There are different people in Genesis, certainly, who meet their wives uh, or meet their husbands at wells which may imply, a bit like we talk about Christ as the bride of Christ, may imply that John is trying to evoke us to the idea that Christ is the true bride of the Samaritans as well as the Jews. So that's quite a detailed one, as it were. Um, but a lot of Jews would have been aware of the fact that when a guy meets a girl at a, a well, it links to marriage. Um, and it's probably saying something about Jesus being for the Samaritans as well as the Jews. One other example anyone managed to complete in that time? And you're grinning at me. What did you read? Uh, I read Matthew 1. Excellent. Good. I was hoping someone said that one. What's, uh, what's helpful there? Um, well, if you didn't know that the genealogy was important at the time and how the Jews needed to understand who the son of the father was and the daughter and so on and so forth, that um, it's not until you get to the last little bit where it says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation uh, to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. So if you didn't have all that genealogy, you wouldn't understand that Abraham is Christ and Christ is... Well, that Christ is descended from Abraham, yeah. so he's in the yeah, family tree, yeah. Family. And so that's a scriptural story. You know, Abraham, absolute key figure, Old Testament. David, absolute key figure. And this guy, Jesus, is descended from them. That's really important. And you're bang on right, Ben, that actually to have a, a good genealogy in the ancient Jewish context is really important. In the beginning of Chronicles, nine or so whole chapters of long genealogies, that's because to show your family tree pedigree, pedigree is really, really important in the ancient world. Great, well done. Let me see the last two points to you, because I think these are really helpful. What we're going to do reading the Bible is to go on a Bible reading journey. It's a three-stage journey. You've got to do all three, and you've got to do them in the right order. You start by saying, what does this text say? This is a really simple, descriptive task. All you're saying is, what does it actually say? Read it carefully. Read it slowly. Note the details. Note the features. Think about repetition, keywords, quotes and allusions, speech, narrator's comments, anything that the writer is using so that when you've done this, you know it really, really well. And then try and summarize it in your own words. Literally just summarize what it says. And this is the step people tend to skip over. They either tend to rush to try and work out what something means, or they see something that they know what it means, and they take a word or a phrase and a verse, and they kind of take that, and it becomes like one of those little um, trampolines you use in gymnastics to spring onto something else. It's springboard interpretation. And actually means you're not understanding the passage at all, you're just taking some words you know, and thinking about those. But actually to understand the Bible properly, we start by saying, what does it say? Before saying, what does it mean? Only when you've got, what does it say? You've done that leg of the journey. Do you then say, well, what does it actually mean? 
Here's where we start thinking about questions and we start thinking about context. How you do this will depend on what type of text it is you're reading. You need to think about all those details you spotted. Why is there repetition of that word? This speech, why is that speech really important? That narrator's comment or that rhetorical question, how does that help me understand why the, t the uh, storyteller here that is writing this, why they're writing it, why they're saying it that way? And only then do you do the final leg of the journey, which is so what? Only here do we get to application. If you try to apply a text earlier on, you're going to get into a muddle. Because until you know what it says and why it says it, you've got that single meaning, you can't begin to think about how to apply it. So sometimes we can feel nervous and think, oh, I'm not yet applying this. This is all a bit um, heady and kind of just thinking. But actually, it's a journey you have to go through. You have to get in the right order to get the right results um, at the end. With application, often our thinking is too small of what application is. Application includes what we think, what we do, what we say, how we pray. There's a huge range of different ways that we apply text. And particularly how we think is a really important one. We tend to think, if I don't have something to go and do because of this, this is not successful applied Bible reading. But actually, we're called to renew our minds. And a lot of what happens when we read the Bible is it's like changing the prescription and the lenses of your glasses. So you're beginning to interpret and understand the world as God understands it and interprets it, which is the right way to understand it and interpret it. Last thing for today, really short. Why are there four Gospels? We often take the children's Bible approach, don't we? Which means you take four accounts or three accounts of the same story, you kind of merge them together, you have all the details from all of them as if there's one Gospel. It's a bit like saying to God, God, we could have done with just one, not four. But clearly God had a reason for giving us four. He could have inspired just one Gospel. He chooses to give us four. Each Gospel tells us the same story, but it gives us its own take on it. And it's a bit like four um, different pictures of the same person. And one of uh, the books we've got here, Richard Burridge, gives a really helpful illustration with Churchill. He says, if you go to um, Chartwell, whether it is that Churchill lived, you go into a room, and the first picture you see of Churchill is this here. This is Churchill and Roosevelt, the American president. This shows you that Churchill is this great statesman, this great politician, meeting these great men who are leading in the world. The next picture you see in this room is this picture here with Churchill down here, which is called Tea at Chartwell, which is him and some friends and family just on a lazy afternoon enjoying tea in the lovely dining room. It speaks of a family man, a man of friends who likes to sit around and relax and have afternoon tea. The next picture is Churchill in an army vehicle with soldiers behind him. This speaks of a man who leads in war. He's in uniform. The soldiers are looking at him, looking to them, him as their leader. It gives us another perspective on who this man is. He's a war leader. And the final one is a photo of Churchill doing some painting and shows us he's an artist. He's a man who likes to relax, who likes to paint, who likes to uh, engage in different activities. When we look around the room, we see these four different portraits. They're all showing us the same person. If we only had one, we'd only get one aspect of him. We'd only have one perspective, one dimension of what Churchill was like. When we put all four together, actually we have a much bigger, kind of more rounded view of who Churchill was as a man. And the four Gospels are quite like that. If we only had one, we'd only have one kind of perspective on Jesus, one focus on, on who he is. Actually, when we take all four and we try and hear them, it's like they're singing the same song in a different key, and we try to hear them in their own key to recognise their distinctives and their emphases, suddenly we get a much more... Uh, much bigger, fuller 
picture of who Jesus is. So our aim throughout this course is to try and say there are four Gospels. What's the benefit of having four rather than one? As we journey through the Gospels, we'll be saying, what does Mark particularly want to show us about Jesus? What does John really care about when it comes to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done? When we get to the end, rather than having kind of made these super stories of mixing them all together and having only one of each one to deal with, actually we'll find this wonderful, as Burroughs calls it, a stained glass window full of wonderful scenes of all the multifaceted colours and characters of who Jesus is, what he's like, what he came to do and how it is we're called to follow him. I hope that whets your appetite for our remaining weeks together and that makes you excited about that. We'll be back here, same room, same time next week, looking at the scriptural story and um, the historical context. Lots of storytelling, so come ready to listen to some good stories. Thank you, everyone.